0: Forletta Investigates. Welcome to Forletta Investigates. Investigative security consultant Larry Forletta is a highly decorated former DEA agent and member of the Maryland State Police. Forletta Investigates aims to provide information on real-life encounters involving law enforcement, drug trafficking, and actual investigations. Listen to the show every Tuesday as we approach topics of crime and other issues affecting our communities with someone who has worked within law enforcement for over 25 years. Here is your host, Larry Forletta.
1: I want to welcome everyone to my podcast, Forletta Investigates. And today, uh, my special guest, as I call him, and an old-time friend, uh, it's an honor and privilege to have him on my show. He's a former DEA agent, and he's the current sheriff of Loudoun County, Virginia, Mike Chapman. So Mike, I want to welcome you to the show.
2: Well, thanks, Larry. Appreciate you inviting me here and uh, congratulations on your podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks, Mike. So one of the things that, uh, you know, I've been trying to do uh, as a message uh, is to show the relative importance that uh, DEA and, and DEA agents have played. And and uh, sometimes the DEA, as you know, and we've been around there a long time, is sort of I call them press shy uh, and a lot of times the uh, agents who risk their lives go on herald in this country and uh, I know you you know firsthand about that and uh, and in addition to that uh, I know that you've had a you've had a great career starting out with uh, uh, Howard County Police who uh, I've worked with quite extensively when I was with the Maryland State Police and then DEA, and we've had a a really a great working relationship. And Howard County Police um, was, in my view, one of the premier law enforcement agencies in in Maryland, uh, especially as a county law enforcement agency. And uh, I've met so many great people there. And then uh, we'll talk a little bit about your career. Uh, I want to mention that uh, you're the current Sheriff of, uh, Loudoun County, Virginia. Uh, you're now starting your third term. So you must be doing something right, Mike, uh, for the people to, uh, consider and reelect you three times now. And, uh, and we'll, we'll get a little bit more in detail about, uh, Loudoun County, uh, Sheriff's office. Uh, I know from my own standpoint, I've seen a different change because, uh, back in the day, you know, Loudoun County was a kind of a rural area, uh, with its growth now de- has developed so much from, uh, you know, the Washington DC metro area. And so the, the landscape of Loudoun County has, tr- uh, changed dramatically from some of the beautiful, uh, horse farms that were there into now a uh, I guess, uh, a, a metropolitan County with maybe still a, some rural flavor left. Um, so, just a little bit about Mike. He's currently the vice president of homeland security for the major county for the major county sheriffs association of, of America. He has served on the board of directors with the National Sheriffs Association. Um, he's also uh, the on the uh, co-chair on the Department of Justice President's Commission on Law Enforcement and the Homeland Security Working Group, uh, and and there are many accolades uh, behind behind Mike. The one thing I I did want to mention, because I think this is really important, you know, Mike uh, has a tremendous family, and a couple of his children are serving our country, which is uh, a great honor. Uh, I know that uh, that Mike looks at that the same way I do. So, Mike, uh, let's begin, and let's talk a little bit about uh, how you started your career in law enforcement.
2: Uh, well, thanks, Larry. I was actually um, the youngest to get hired by the Howard County Police Department. I had just turned 21. I had gone through the process. I was in the process for Montgomery County uh, as well. And um, I had done that because uh, I grew up. My dad was a Washington, D.C. Uh, police detective uh, when I was uh, a youngster. And uh, and I, I kind of grew up hearing his stories, and I was kind of fascinated by it. Uh, I had uh, Actually, while I was in high school... I had earned my black belt in uh taekwondo uh, back then it wasn't taekwondo wasn't really very well known so people called it korean karate and uh I uh, I ended up um got my black belt at age 17 at 18 uh, I was teaching full-time for the Junry Institute. Um, I had my own studio, it was a franchise uh, sort of operation. I had my own studio with uh, w- with the Junry Institute. He had had about, I don't know, eight or so schools around the Baltimore, I'm sorry, around the Washington, D.C. area. And, uh, and I'd gone to a year of community college, decided uh, I would uh, teach karate, and I did that for a while and realized uh, there was just something lacking in that career. I, I enjoyed it. I had some, uh, professional full contact fights and, uh, and, uh, and, I'd also been dating my, uh, my girlfriend from high school and we had kind of thought about getting married and I, uh, wanted to make sure that I, I was in a good career, uh, job, uh, with all the, 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 the things that come with that, the benefits and, you know, uh, all, all the other things that come with that. So I started looking at law enforcement much more seriously, um, finished up my associate's degree and applied for Howard County and was very fortunate uh, to, to be picked up as the youngest uh, member of the the police academy in 1978. So that's a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, I tell you what, I've been doing this uh, in this business now for over 40 years. It's, uh, it's pretty incredible. uh. So I went through the academy there, um, got out, uh, and um, and had an opportunity to work uh, with Howard County uh, in uh, patrol operations, uh, SWAT. Uh, We had a separate unit, special operations section, which was a sort of a catch-all unit plus a SWAT unit, and then a year as a detective. But when I was on the uh, SWAT team, one of the things that we did was we did a lot of these um, raids with, uh, with DEA. And back then, and he's since passed. Is uh, Dick Durant was the uh, was the agent that we would work with out there in Howard County. And back then, then we had a lot of problems with PCP labs and uh, just other, you know, drug trafficking issues there. And uh, and that's really where I got introduced to uh, to DEA. Uh, and I thought, wow, this is uh, pretty interesting stuff here, you know. And so, uh, you know, I was starting to look to see whether I want to whether or not I wanted to move from local law enforcement to federal law enforcement and had applied to a couple different places and DEA fortunately processed my application the quickest and uh, And I was able to uh, to get hired in 1985 and uh, and go to the Academy It was the first Academy that they had uh, started there with I'm sorry the second Academy uh, At uh, where we co-located with the FBI in Quantico. So that's kind of where I started right. my uh, my DEA career
1: yeah, you you came on about the same time I did um, we were the last class in Glencoe uh, when they switched over to uh, to Quantico and so uh, uh, I guess we both have been around a block a couple times huh um, but uh, so Mike and so when now we're talking to, now we're talking about your uh, your move from uh, Howard County uh, which is obviously, um, uh, a different mindset, working from you know a local perspective, and now going over to the federal perspective. So, tell us a little bit about uh, what you did and you know where you where you ended up going and and part of your career in, in in DEA.
2: Sure. So it was uh, it was interesting going through the academy. Okay. So we had class thirty nine was the first one to co locate with the FBI, and I know DEA was trying to. Um, to show the FBI how they ran academies, very competitive sort of an environment, and uh, and I know that the they lost a lot of people. I think class thirty nine had started with about forty six, and ultimately only graduated about eighteen. So I know wow. our class coordinator at the time, Bob Parks. Yeah, that's how tough it was, uh, wow. and uh, and our class coordinator at the time was Bob Bob Parks, and every morning he would come in and he would say, "Class yep. thirty nine lost two more and all that." So if so you're always kind of living on edge. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, I was a detective <laughs> with Howard County. I gave up seven years of that career. I've got a wife and three kids. And man, what if I don't make it through this? Where do I go from here? You know, so it was a little bit uh, uh, scary, a little bit of pressure uh, on yeah. that. So uh, anyway, so I did fine in the academy. And, uh, and I do know o- only because I'd heard it and I didn't whether to believe it or not but i i do know when i was in the running i was one of a couple people that they were looking at for the to graduate number one and the only reason i i was able to validate that was when i i wanted to get certified in virginia for my when i after i became sheriff and we pulled up all the records and sure as heck it was on there i so i i'd heard that i didn't know if it was true or not i, so I thought okay this is just uh, somebody's feeding me a bunch of bs but it was actually true but uh so i went through the academy and uh, when I graduated the academy, and back then, as you know, uh, Larry, that was, uh, you know, the crazy cocaine days uh, down in Miami, and I think about half of our class got assigned to Miami, so I went down there, um, uh, moved down there, and, uh, you know, and it's, it was rough. I know my wife sold the house on, on her own, and we're in the process of moving down, so it was pretty tough, and, you know, at the time, I was 28 years old, I'd, Three kids, and uh, you're doing a move, and I didn't have any kind of family or infrastructure down there, which made it, uh, you know, all the tougher. And then, of course, one of the things I found with DEA, uh, just a different mindset. As you know, we all got, you know, uh, A U O at the time, uh, uncontrolled overtime, administratively uncontrolled overtime, which meant that pretty much for 25 percent of your salary, uh, DEA pretty much owned you 24 hours a day. And in a place like Miami. Uh, boy, i tell you what, we were working all kinds of crazy hours, uh, following around these drug traffickers and everything else. Uh, and, uh, you know, so it was, it was very taxing. And one of the, um, you know, I was in, I was in group two, which was, uh, the, the supervisor there for most of the time I was, there was Mike Coleman was a great, you know, is a great guy, did a great job there. And we worked, uh, mostly the Cali cartel at the time. And, uh, you know, aside from other, you know, uh, targets of opportunity, um, but you know one of the interesting things i found when i went down to miami i was on for about 3 weeks and we had a tip that a uh, a uh, a cabin cruiser was coming into the uh, a dock at Key Biscayne and, uh, and it was pretty good information that it would be loaded with cocaine and so uh i went down there and we had um, we had two of us on one side of the of the canal and um and then we saw this, this vessel come in and we're, we're looking at it, so we ended up calling a couple other people and myself, and at the time, Charlie Graham, went around to the front of the house because what we saw them do was take a circular saw and start cutting into the bow of the boat. And uh, they started pulling out you know, these big, like almost like burlap sacks. Um, and we figured, okay, this is probably it. So we go ahead and got two more people to replace us on one side of the canal. And we ran around to the front side of the uh, of the house and uh, and then confronted one of the guys uh, coming around the back side of the house who was starting to unload stuff in the uh, into he was getting ready to lo- unload it into the garage and he had a uh, uh, I remember Lincoln Continental with the trunk ajar and i I remember drawing down on him while Charlie went to the front of the house and I drew down on this guy coming around and he looked at me I looked at him he he was gonna make a he was going to make a lurch for the car and then he decided differently and decided to then take a dive into the water. And we, we went ahead and flipped the trunk of the car up and, and it was loaded with a Mac 10 with all kinds of clips. And I mean, they were ready to rock and roll and, uh, ended up on that seizure. We ended up getting 350 kilograms of cocaine. So that was me down wow. there after about three weeks. And, right. and I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> cause I remember being a, being a uniform cop in Howard County chasing, uh, chasing a guy across the entire Chatham mall parking lot, which uh, I think had like a Walmart there or something, you know, and he threw a vial of cocaine down. And I just remember that being, to me was a big score. And then I go down to Miami as a uh, special agent. The very first thing I'm on is 350 kilos of cocaine with uh, firearms and everything else. Um, so it was, it was a pretty crazy time. And it was within about a week or so of that, that those, uh, that the FBI had their shootout, uh, down there, um, where you had, uh, you know, special agents, Jerry Dove and, 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 uh, uh, ben, uh, uh, Gargan, uh, um, or Grogan rather, uh, who were, who were down there and, uh, they, they ended up, uh, trying to take off, uh, these, these two bad guys, William Maddox and, uh, and a guy named Platt who were, uh, who were heisting these, uh, um, um, uh, these, uh, these vehicles that, uh, uh, armored car vehicles. And so they ended up, um, uh, getting into this big shootout down there, and uh, two of the agents died. Uh, like I said, mm-hmm. Ben Brogan and Jerry Dove. And I can remember remember, uh, that was back before we had uh, cell phones and all that. You had pagers, but that was about right. it. And I can just remember when that story broke in Miami, there was just all kinds of, you know, everybody's spouse was calling into the office because all they said were federal agents were killed in a shootout. And everybody, because we were always working the street down there, so a lot of people thought it was DEA and i just remember you know the wives, uh in our group trying to get a hold of the agents because they were afraid that it was us who were involved in the shootout so
1: yeah
2: uh and i just remember going home and my wife was like what the hell did we get ourselves into here you know <laughs> this is a pretty crazy place yeah but uh well, but i tell you but i'll tell you something larry uh, th- it was great though i mean honest to god uh the work that we did down there and going after those colombian drug traffickers and uh and all that was uh, was was very rewarding, and I, um, you know, very. What I like about what I really liked about the job is you just every day you went to work. And I still find that in law enforcement, every day you go to work and you don't know what the job is going to bring. And to right. me, I just like uh, to me, I just enjoy that. Uh, I, I couldn't, I could never stand being at a, at a job where it's just a daily routine. I like to, I like to come to work and have uh, basically no idea how the day is going to go, and we just kind of ad lib and take it from there.
1: Well, I, I know my, and you, you run a very good, uh, police department as well, but, um, you know, for them to believe that it was DEA in the shootings, uh, DEA was involved in many shootings in Miami at that time when the cocaine cowboys, uh, had infiltrated, uh, the Miami, Florida area. So, uh, their suspicions, uh, would, would be, you know, well understood, that And the concerns from family members because of all the many shootings that DEA was involved in, in Miami. Um, so after uh, uh, you working in Miami, I know uh, you, you went overseas, you were in Pakistan, uh, you, you served some time there. How, how did that work, Mike, for, for you and your family going overseas?
2: Well, it was, uh, it was rough, but, uh, just one uh, other to finish up on Miami and working work the County cartel. I, I really was, uh, had an opportunity. We worked a lot with New York, uh, a group where Jerry McArdle was up there mm-hmm. and, uh, working the County cartel. I had the, uh, good fortune of being able to personally arrest, uh, two major cartel players down there. One was Lucho Santa Cruz, which was the brother of Chepi Santa Cruz, uh, Londano, uh, and, uh, he was, uh, I think he was like the chief, um, uh, finance guy with the Cali cartel at the time. Uh, and I remember working with my partner, George Erie, and we had a couple other, uh, folks on a surveillance that we were doing. And we, we, we finally got the okay from the U S attorney's office that we had the PC to arrest, uh, Lucho. And we saw him go to his attorney's office. And, uh, and I said, uh, does anybody have the back? I remember being uh, on the surveillance and, uh, you know, everybody's covering the front. I said, does anybody have the back? And I don't think anybody thought that this guy would try to escape out the back from his attorney's office, and he sure did. And the next thing I know, he comes walking out the back onto a deck, starts walking down a block, and he sees us driving behind him. And he starts scurrying up quicker and quicker and quicker as we got closer, so we ended up taking him down. And that was a major score, as well as um, being able to arrest Freddy Aguilera Quijano, who was the, uh, the chief chemist for the Cali uh, cartel. So we did uh we were able to take a bite out of out of that organization when we were down there, which uh we were proud to do and, and I tell you a lot of group a lot of group effort, a lot of uh, you know, round the clock uh, surveillances following people around. You didn't have the technology then that you do now, uh and everything you had to do was pretty much manual. So you're you got five guys in a car and you're constantly rotating people in and out and you know, trying to make it through the night on these people and, uh, identifying who they're with, what they're doing, uh, who their contacts are, where they're going. So it was an interesting, um, it was an interesting time in Miami. So <clears throat> I enjoyed it. I enjoyed, uh, the type of work. I enjoyed the unpredictability of it. Um, and, but we, we decided, uh, at the time, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was looking at overseas, uh, opportunities. I'd only had three years on the job. So I figured, uh, I remember talking to one of the senior agents and he was telling me, he goes, hey, look, you know, you're young, you got a family, you know, you you came down as a GS-7, it's got to be financially tough on you. And I said, it is. And he goes, well, you know, you ought to think about going overseas. And I'm like, and I didn't even realize, uh, you know, how many offices DA had overseas. So I started looking into it and um, and I thought, well, okay, so you get your house paid for, uh, you get to look at the, the drug angle from a whole different side. Um, this might be something worth doing and knowing that I, you know, with three years on the job, I wasn't going to get, you know, Rome or Paris or, uh, or right. London or anything like that. I, I put in for some things I thought I might get. And, um, and so I put in for, uh, Karachi, Pakistan and, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, <laughs> yeah. Larry, I, you know, uh, my wife is because obviously he didn't have the internet back then and all that. So, so what I was doing to try to get her, I, I knew she would not be for that. So I'd go to the library and I would get books on like um, India and Pakistan, and just kind of like leave them like on the coffee table. And um, <laughs> and so so she noticed this. And so she's like, "Hey, why do you uh, why do you keep leaving these books around the house?" Because I saw one on Pakistan, I saw one on India. I was like, have ah, no reason. It's just kind of curious." I talked to some people that you know, uh, you know, we're aware of the drug problem over there. And I thought it'd be interesting to read. And she's like, oh, okay. And then so I did it a couple more times, she says, Hey, what, what's going on here? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I said, Hey, look, if we go overseas, these are the benefits of doing an overseas post. Um, and, uh, and so she, she got behind me on it. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't easy, but she did. And, uh, one of the things about going to a place like Karachi is that, um, you know, you have to get uh, all kinds of vaccinations. So we had to get like yellow fever shots, gamma goblin, rabies shots. Now I had three kids, um, wow. ages, mm. I think seven to three. Okay. And I was right. afraid like on, on some of these shots, uh, that the, like my three-year-old that the needle was going to go in one side of his arm and out the other. I mean, some of these things had some pretty long needles. Some of these things like, right. were hot shots. I don't remember whether it was the yellow fever or the gamma goblin, but I remember getting a shot and feeling the heat go through my whole body on that thing. And And uh, I was like, man, I don't know. And uh, this is uh, some scary stuff. And uh, but we went over to Pakistan. uh, And uh, what I really found was I found the work there uh, in different ways, as interesting as I found the work in Miami. Um, uh, Being in a source country, I I worked on the Sohel Ahmed case. And I think one of the first things that we were able to do was to get five kilos of of heroin for delivery to the U.S. And uh, what we did to kind of upset the, uh, the normal, um, apple cart when it came to these. Cause almost all the time, all that time, the heroin would go to New York for distribution. So we, uh, instead decided to, to, uh, bring it down to Miami. I had a good contact there, Bill Reed at the time. And he's like, yeah, bring it down here. We'll fly here and form it out. We can do the deal down here. And so they end up, uh, we end up doing that and we end up, uh, wiring a, um, Uh, an undercover room uh, in a townhouse where the deal was going to take place. And um, so we end up uh, getting some, so three people come down to pick up this five kilos of heroin. And so they they come in, they go into the townhouse, they uh, take delivery, they call the um, uh, back to Pakistan, say everything's fine, we're leaving then they call a cab and uh well we're the undercover cab drivers we're going to go back to the airport uh and uh but we're the undercover cab drivers cab gets pulled over you got uh you got three guys in the in the cab uh with 5 kilos of heroin so so they get arrested it was interesting because these guys were um were all members of the um, well I it was the, it was Pacano and Salvador Gambino so they, they were members mm-hmm. of, the, uh, of the of the mob up there I'm not sure which family it might have been the Gambino family but I I thought it was the purple gang but uh, either way they were they were um, they were they were family members up there uh, mafia members that had come down to pick this stuff up and uh, we were able to get uh, that was like I was only in Pakistan for probably uh, three or four months when we were able to make that case and then we made several cases, uh, subsequent to that very similar, you know, and I had a chance. In fact, I had a chance to work with, uh, Derek Maltz. Uh, he came down for another delivery that we had 20, 20 kilos going to New York. And he and I both had to fly with this 10 kilos each, uh, having to carry that unarmed, making sure that we got all the country clearances to bring it back to New York so that we could do the deliveries. And, um, and so there we are both of us uh flying on an air france flight uh with uh carrying uh, you know uh like gym bags uh, each with uh, <laughs> 10 kilos of uh heroin in it each you know so yeah. it was interesting uh, but but i i tell you something Larry you know this um you know you you, you pretty much had to be pretty uh creative and um yeah. uh, pretty edgy i think to to make the cases if if you were if you were timid, um, with DEA, you weren't going to make too many cases. You had to pretty much do some bold things, make some bold news if you wanted to have success with your cases. And so, so, uh, you know, I actually made the most out of, a, out of Pakistan. My family, uh, my wife had come back, uh, uh, for, uh, medevac for our fourth child. And then after that, the, the Gulf war started and then they were evacuating, um, everybody. So, uh, I, I ended up going back and opening the office back and it was, uh, we had just flown back as a family, got there one day and found out we were going to get evacuated. And I was like, oh man, I got to turn right around and go back to the U S again. And, uh, which was pretty tough, pretty tough on the family. So I got to say that my family's been through a lot. Um, they've seen a lot, they've done a lot. They've got a lot of world experience. Um, but, uh, it, it hasn't come easy. I mean, it certainly is, uh, you know, uh, certainly has taken its toll on, uh, you know, over time. I mean, because there's a lot that you go through on a, on a job like DEA that you put your family through, but, uh, but overall uh, things have worked out extremely well for us.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt, Mike. And of course, we all know that having a strong family support system, uh, makes your job, you know, a lot easier in that sense. And, and it's for all of us really, um, without that strong support family, because, uh, when you get into an organization like DEA, uh, a lot of people now, and I, I remember seeing as on a secretary's desk one day is home is where DEA sends you. And it's almost true to form. Um, and so there, there's so many challenges there, uh, that take place and especially, uh, being tough on, on families. Um, uh, so then, uh, I guess we'll move on a little bit about your career. I know that, uh, you were the uh, assistant special agent in charge of San Francisco. Uh, and uh, then you are the country attache in, in, in charge of uh, Seoul, Korea. So you've had a, a lot of tremendous uh, management experience, uh, learning, I guess, a lot from that point of view.
2: Right. And when you talk about the family, the one thing I'll say, Larry, is that um, I, I would say that had we not had that kind of exposure to so many different people, so many different places of the world. We would have never, you mentioned my family before, and I'm, I'm very fortunate. I've got a, a son who's a commander of the USS Arleigh Burke, a Naval Academy graduate. My youngest daughter is in the Naval Academy right now. I have a son that's a Coast Guard Academy graduate. I have a son that's an Air Force Academy graduate who just got uh, picked up by the FBI uh, for wow. their special agent class in, in, uh, in April. So, uh, but I would say that what was really good. It's good and bad. I mean, it's rough on a family to do those moves, but the other, the the flip side of that is that the exposure that you get and living in different cultures and understanding how other people live, I think really opens your eyes to a lot of things that, that a lot of people don't have an opportunity to do. So, um, so in a way, as tough as it was doing all those moves and putting the family through all that, uh, they still got, um, quite a bit out of it. And I think it really helped us, uh, i think it helped them in ways that uh you you know you can't really describe very intangible ways that that really helped them with their perspective on life with their ability to understand other cultures and be able to communicate the way they do and i think that has a lot to do uh, with their success you know and certainly my wife has been a trooper through all this and because obviously as you know we spent so many hours working that uh, you really need to have uh, you need to have a solid support system. And, and, uh, fortunately my wife was that she's done a, done a terrific job in some very adverse circumstances raising the kids. So yeah. it's all, it's all been good. So, yes, yeah, so I went from, uh, from there to Tampa, Tampa to, um, McGowan. So I was on the border and that's obviously a hot topic right now with what's going on, uh, with, with the, the, the crisis at the border right now. And then, uh, country attache and Seoul, uh, then, um, Let's see. Then, chief of public affairs for DA and congressional public affairs, and and I would tell people that uh, after uh, all this time in law enforcement, that um, I probably learned more there in those three years um, than uh, than maybe 20 years of enforcement together. Because when you're when you're the person that's got to answer for an entire agency like that uh, publicly. Um, all of a sudden the pressure is pretty big, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. on you and how you say it, what you say, what you put out there, what you don't. Um, I mean, it was really to me, uh, and then you learn a lot, uh, not just about your world, but about DEA across the globe and, and everything that's going on and all the problems and all the issues and concerns, all the good stuff that we're doing. So it really, it, it really was like, uh, you know, drinking water through a fire hose, uh, getting that job, but it really, in, in a way it, um, it really helped pave the way for uh, for me to get into the career i 'm in right now because i don 't know that I could have uh, done this, run a campaign um, had the uh, a certain level of comfort with the media uh, you know had I not had a job like that and and when I was there at, as Chief of public affairs, I worked uh, you know directly uh, for uh, uh, administrator Hutchinson at the time who was who had been a congressman. Uh, and then uh administrator for really only a short period of time about a year and a half, I think with d e a and before he went on to under secretary of security but but I noticed uh you know his leadership style was he was not afraid to uh to ever get out to to say anything publicly to answer the tough questions out there and I really learned a lot about uh about that aspect of this job, and one of the things you had mentioned. Uh, you know, when your lead-in to this interview was DEA, unfortunately, you've got these silent warriors. So you have all these people that do these phenomenal cases. I mean, you look at like SOD, Special Operations Division. You look at these complex wiretaps that are done. You look at these international cases from, from you know, production to transportation to uh, to to sale, drug sales to to people dying from overdoses. And you look at everything across the board and the. The amazing cases that DEA has done over the years, and really, very few of them ever really get the the recognition they deserve. And uh, so, I'm glad you're actually doing these podcasts. I think it's important to uh, that that people get recognized for the hard work they do. I mean, uh, you know, I look at we're in my 8:30 meeting every morning. It's something that I, I kind of learned from DEA, but I have an 8:30 staff meeting, executive staff meeting, and Today, we we're talking about the drug take back day, which I think is a good thing that DEA does. But that's just one minor right. thing in the scope of so many, many good things that they do that they really shouldn't be getting credit for. But uh, and it is frustrating to me when I see, I see how, how little they reach out to, to tell the public about the, the, the great work that they're doing.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, I think that has been their tradition uh, because of our environment, and sometimes we're we live in an environment of secrecy, and uh, and because mm-hmm. of uh, you know information getting out, which could affect obviously uh, investigations. Uh, so I, I think there's a lot of different issues, but um, you know over the years, I think we're starting to see a change. That's why you know uh, I'm going to have uh, Zach Donovan on this afternoon. Uh, to get somebody that's currently uh, working for DEA, you know, Um, and because a lot of us know Mm -hmm. that, uh, uh, you know, about uh, the agency itself and, uh, you know, all the people that respect and love the agency who, you know, sacrificed uh, many things. So now uh, we come full circle, uh, Mike, in in your uh, great career with DEA, um, and, uh, and by the way, you know, Asa Hutchison is the, the governor of Arkansas. So you did have a good, uh, role model teacher there for sure. Uh, especially in the, especially in the, in the world of politics. Um, so now that, that mm-hmm. brings us to, uh, where we're at currently. Um, and, uh, what made you decide, um, about running for, uh, for sheriff? Because I know I've had some friends, who had, uh, prior law enforcement backgrounds, uh, that try to run in Loudoun County and, uh, they didn't make it.
2: Yes. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, Larry, because, uh, so I retired, um, I think I was age 51. I retired, uh, out of California and I wanted to move back to the area. and, uh, and I'd gotten a job with Booz Allen and Hamilton as a subject matter expert on law enforcement. And so, uh, I came back to this area and while we were researching the area and I mean, I grew up, uh, in, in Montgomery County, Maryland and worked in Howard County. And, but when I was in headquarters, I'd actually lived in Virginia and I kind of, you know, like Virginia a little bit better. Um, even though I'd grown up in Maryland. So, so we decided, Hey, let's make it Virginia. And plus the uh, office for, for Booz Allen and was there right by the Dulles uh, airport by, by the Washington Dulles airport. So I figured, okay, so my wife did the research. She says, Hey, Loudoun County is a, um, you know pretty nice area there they you know got a reputation for a good school system low crime rate and all that so i was like okay yeah you know, let's look at that so she had to stay back i i got hired in uh, november 2008 i came out while uh she was back in california waiting for the kids to finish school before she could come out in june and, and in the meantime i was looking for a house and i i ended up uh finding a house out here in loudon and leesburg that was under construction that i decided to uh you know we we kept going back and forth i decided to buy the house now, at the time, I was uh, I had just started work for Booz Allen as a subject matter expert in law enforcement, and uh, and I'd met Pete Metesser, who had just as well retired from DEA, and um, we got to talking, and he says, "Hey, you know, if you're moving to Loudoun County, you ought to think about running for sheriff." And I said, "Well, why would I do that?" And he says, "Well, you know, they don't have a police department, and the sheriff handles everything out there." And I said, "What?" Because I was always used to like Howard County, Montgomery County, Prince George's County, Fairfax County, where you had all these police departments, these county police departments. Um, right. mm-hmm. And I was like, well, that's interesting. So I ended up, um started to look into it to see whether, what it would take, you know, to see how to do this, if I decided to do it. And, and I fortunately working at a Booz Allen. There's a lot of, you know, pretty sharp people there that, that uh, some who had run campaigns before and stuff like that. So I would ask them, hey, what if I was to do this? How should I do this? What do I need to do? And all that. So I started um thinking about it. And in the meantime, um, you know, I joined a couple organizations in the county, the and Crime Commission. And I also joined the, I was on the Advisory Commission for Youth because I wanted to get a feel for the county, what was going on, a little bit about the politics in the county started attending some political functions and meetings to see how all this would work and then started asking a lot of questions. And I remember asking, um, you know, I was about I don't know, a year uh into this thinking about it, and I remember meeting um uh a woman who, who really was the the one who knew all there was to know about politics in Loudoun County and she says to me, she she asked the same question, she says, Why are you running? And I said, Well, I think I got the background, I think it's is probably a step up for this uh i said you know you got a good sheriff here it's not a, he's not a problem but but it looks to me like the county needs to move forward and she says let me ask you something she says um how long you lived in the county for and i said a year she says who do you know and i said nobody and she says how much money you got and i said none and she says i don't think i'd be running if i were you so um a couple months later i announced anyway and i had a uh, i had a function uh had some people show up, mostly DEA people. And the people that were with the, um, I ran as a Republican, and the people that were with the Republican Party sent some scouts out. And, and most of the people that had come out to my, my fundraiser were retired DEA and uh, members of Booz Allen, some FBI folks I knew. And, and they didn't know who any of these people were because they were so used to just their world of uh, of local mm-hmm. politics here. And all of a sudden, I, uh, I was I had this other group of people that they had no idea who it was. And so... I announced I had to run against um because I was not uh, you know I hadn't been here for 20 years I hadn't been with the party I hadn't knocked on doors and delivered uh, you know uh, pamphlets and all that so uh so they actually put people up against me the uh the party actually put people up against me um Really? uh <laughs> they tried to, to try to take me out yeah and you know and, and I mean lady like said you got you got, a, you got a great background and all and but um So anyway, so they they put a couple people up against me. They got a retired uh, FBI guy uh, to try to run against me. They got a a guy who was a a sheriff's uh, lieutenant, and then he went over to the police department to to run against me. There was another guy who wanted to run on his own. So I had to ultimately run against three people in a primary. Two of them ultimately, uh, they saw I was picking up steam, backed out, and then I only had one primary contender, and I beat him. I won every every district in the county. And then I got the Republican nomination. Uh, and at that time it was uh, basically pretty much a, a Republican slate. And, um, and so we won and, uh, and I, I became the sheriff at that point and uh, in a three way race. And I, one of the people I ran against was a 16 year incumbent and I beat him. Um, I think in a three way race, I got I on a 50, 52% of the vote, uh, to his 37 and then whatever was left over to the third guy. So, um, So I did pretty good and uh, having no background whatsoever in politics, having no knowledge of what I was doing other than just the research that I did uh, the year leading up to when I ran and uh, to win a countywide race, having lived in the county for just over, I mean, you know, like, well, two years by the time I finally won, but that's pretty, it was pretty fortunate. I mean, I, I, you know, honestly, when I look back on it, I'm like, boy, how how did we pull this thing off, you know? And yeah. I did it with all volunteers. I had, they had no money. I did it with all volunteers. A lot of people put a lot of money into their races, and I did it really on a shoestring. And, uh, so one, and then I initiated a lot of um, uh, advancements with the county, and that really rubbed some of the, uh, the old boys here the wrong way. And you had a group that was uh, targeting me from the start, people that I'd actually promoted, the senior-level positions, who tried oh, to take mm-hmm. me out in the second round. And primary in a second round. And it's, it's interesting because as a sheriff, you don't have any county, you don't, have, there's no, there's no buffer, you know, and, and you're, you're basically on your own and you run your own campaign and anybody can run against you. And I mean, so you're, you're, you know, it's, it's pretty, uh, uh, it's pretty scary thing, quite frankly. Uh, and um, so I went through it and, um, you know, won the primary again and then, you know, a, pretty much a, almost a landslide, my second time around and then uh, then one again my third time I didn't have a primary opponent my third election here so um, so it's been it's it's worked out well it's worked out well for me but one of the things that um, that's interesting uh, is the differences between a police department and a sheriff's office and a lot of this Larry I did not understand when I took office I figured okay well it's a you're almost like running a police department in addition to a sheriff's office where you have the courts and the, you know, in the jail. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. And then you're running an enforcement arm, but you're an elected official. But the difference is, is that you have no top cover and that you uh, connect directly with the citizens in the County. So we got 413,000 or so citizens in Loudoun County. And that's who I answer to. Um, Now it, it didn't, it didn't become too much of an issue until, um, about you know the last couple of years where you have a, a chairwoman of the board who uh, who wants to model us basically after like a Fairfax county or uh, or whatever uh, in uh, and make a police chief and the reason that they want to do that, she wants to do that and this is where where politics really gets into it is because that way, the uh, the political party then picks who they want as their chief, and the chief then right. answers basically to them. They don't answer, they don't answer directly to the people; they answer to them. And if you look at what's going on in law enforcement nationwide, and you look at really just a couple of recent disasters over the past year, you don't have to go any farther than you know Portland, Oregon, or Seattle, or St. Louis, or Atlanta, or these places where you have political. Uh, 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 agendas that are driving police chiefs. And if you don't, as a chief, fall into the, uh, the political framework of that board of supervisors or county council or town council, you're basically out of a job. You know, the average police chief lasts anywhere between three and five years and the average sheriff lasts about 11 or 12 years. So what that tells you is there's a lot more consistency with elected office. And the difference is that the people get to elect you directly. Okay. And if they don't like the job you're doing, they can get right. rid of you four years later and say, hey, we don't like this guy. We're going to vote for somebody else, rather than having people that have political agendas making the pick, and then you become basically a puppet of theirs. And the, another difference is, too, is that as a sheriff, I'm actually an advocate for my agency, and it creates a balance in the system because I can challenge things that the board will do rather than having to acquiesce and do whatever they tell me to do. Um Sure. And that way I can actually advocate by people and say, look, uh, you know, we need a, you know, we did a class and comp study. We wanted to be paid more comparably with our surrounding jurisdictions. We were able to get that ball rolling. There's a lot of things that we've done to advance the agency. And, and what we're finding now, Larry, interestingly enough, is that we're having police officers from surrounding departments leaving uh, in significant numbers to come to a sheriff's office. Now I would have never thought that you know ten years ago, people that sometimes may have not gotten hired by a police department would work at a sheriff's office, to then um, get a couple years in and then go to a police department. Now it's the other way around because what they're seeing is um, is that we have the ability to stand up for our guys, and I have to fall to a political uh, mindset, and uh, and they like that, and they like the idea of uh, you know community, you know working directly with the With the people having, you know, the one thing I got to say about sheriff's office is that if we're not connecting and I'm not connecting with the community that I serve, I'm out of a job. So everything that we do, everything and everybody Mm -hmm. that works here, whole mindset is is uh, is working with the public. You know, it's all community relations. And that's really what we promote here. And I think a lot of people like to come here because of that. So we're doing very well.
1: Yeah. And, and I, uh, and I see it firsthand. Um, I've been sort of following you, Mike, on, on what you're doing for Loudoun County. And, and, uh, of course there's a always political ramifications. And I think by today's standards, um, uh, some of these, uh, politicians have tried to change policing as we know it. Uh, you know, turn your head this way. Don't look that way. Uh, leave this group alone, you know, let them burn and loot uh, and let them just do what they want. Um, and I think our society overall is changing and I think it's for the worst. Uh, there's a lot of good communities out there like Loudoun County, but when you start looking at our major cities and you and I, you know, we worked them, uh, particularly in Baltimore and what has happened in Baltimore is just mind boggling to me. Uh, you know, the police do not get the support there like they should. And, and even New York City, same thing. I mean, some of the best cops that I've ever met in my career were with NYPD. And so you can see the drastic changes that are going on. And fortunately, Loudoun County has somebody like you, Mike, that will, you know, dig their heels in the sand and stand up for what's right. And I think that's why you're able to attract good recruits, because at the end of the day, good recruits can really enhance uh, your organization.
2: Well, you're right, Larry, and uh, we're fortunate. And you know, the thing is, is uh, you know, there's a move, obviously, to defund police, which I think is just insane. Uh, There's, there's moves here to erode the Constitution, um, you know, and the rule of law, and to, uh, to do things for reasons other than um, uh, enforcement. Uh, You know, it, it, you know, we really have an important job to do, and it's dangerous, as we saw last night in uh, or yesterday in Boulder, Colorado, and. You know, Officer uh, Callie, who um, who was, uh, I mean, killed there, unfortunately, is, you know, a father, 51 years old, 11 years on the job, seven children. This is a dangerous job. And there's a lot of people that are making decisions about this job that have no idea what this job entails uh, and and what uh, the dangers that are associated with and how things turn on and done. You know, we had a uh, January the 2nd, we had two deputies that went to a Walmart to you think it's a rather routine call to pick up a shoplifter okay and next thing you know that ends up in a shootout we have one of our deputies who shot four times in the in the lower extremities here it's going to take him a long time to recover uh and another one who uh you know had to had to apply a tourniquet on him and and then go after the bad guy i mean there was all kinds of stuff going on and people you have a lot of folks out there that you know oh we think we can we can you know we, we're a leader in crisis intervention training and i can tell you uh, we do, we work like beyond anybody when it comes to deescalating, uh, uh, you know, tense, uh, volatile mm-hmm. situations and, uh, we've gotten recognized nationally for our efforts in that, but that stuff doesn't work all the time. And I think people think, uh, you can always talk somebody down. And unfortunately there are some times where you actually have to apply force and we've, we've come a long way. I know when I, in 2013, when we were starting that program and getting our people tra- trained, we had deployed tasers like 43 times that year. And then as we got more and more people trained next year, it went down to 17 and next year to 11, next year seven. And we averaged about three or four taser deployments a year. So our communications and de-escalation techniques have really gotten good. Um, However, I also realize as you do having been in this job for a long time that you can't do that in every situation. And that I think there's a, there's a big swath of the public out there that thinks that we can deescalate every situation and never have to use force, and that's just not reality. And that concerns me. That there's there's just this misconception out there about what we what we do, how we do it, and what we have to do to preserve, you know, our lives as well as those around us. Uh, and and I think that's often forgotten about.
1: Yeah, I I think overall, Mike, I agree with you, and and I do believe that the majority uh, of the citizens in this country, support law enforcement. Uh, there's just that certain element uh, that has tried to change something uh, which, you know, being called, uh, you know, a variety of different names. And, uh, you know, in, in the way I look at law enforcement in today's standards, uh, it, we're, we're just a melting pot. And, of course, you know, when, when I uh, – and, and you likely went to DEA, it was a major melting pot of citizens – uh, from all race and backgrounds, uh, working for DEA. And, uh, and and I know that uh, our law enforcement agencies are similar. Uh, so, you know, there, there is this big misconception. I think a lot of it is negative uh, news media attention uh, because you don't see them put anything good on about what police do. You only, they show you the one percenter's that are bad for law enforcement.
2: Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right, Larry. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And you right about DEA. When I look at uh, when I, I look at the backgrounds and the variety of uh, people with all different cultures and races, religions, and everything else that made up the DEA, and and it was an international organization, which which really made us gave us the ability to reach across the globe on just about anything that we needed to do in that agency and 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 i see like uh in Loudoun we definitely work to uh to make uh make ourselves representative of the population that we serve we're doing we're doing very well out there uh but we also uh we also have to make sure that uh that we don't forget that uh we have a u.s constitution and a state constitution that we have to abide by and that—that that part of our job, as much community outreach as we do, as much education and training that we do, as much out—as much outreach as we've done, quite frankly, with the DEA and having the DEA museum out here and holding forums and educational um, uh, um, presentations with regards to like uh, fentanyl and uh, and heroin and all that. Uh, we've done a lot on all those aspects. But we also are charged with enforcing laws and the rule of law, and uh, and we we can't forget that. And the public needs to know that, as, you know, as nice as it would be to just um, not have to do that, that's part of our job. I, I do worry. I used to have a college professor who would say, hey, look, um, you know, uh, you know how you get rid of crime? Uh, you get rid of laws. No laws, no crime. And I'm afraid that we're going down that road, you know, that... We, we actually need laws and we need to enforce laws in order to preserve uh, the public uh, safety out there. So uh, we can't forget that. So
1: Yeah. I, and I think you're starting to see some of these communities who were actually defunding the police like Minnesota or Minneapolis, I should say. Um, and I think their tune is changing uh, because now they know that their safety is in jeopardy besides uh, the general public. And usually, It's the general public in in a lot of poor communities that really suffer because they don't have, you know, uh, guards out in front of their gates, of their gated community. So, um, Mm -hmm. and again, Mike, I I wanted to thank you for taking time to come on the show. uh, And I wish you continued success. uh, And uh, God bless you and your family. And I know that the people of Loudoun County have made a right choice. And we'll continue to make the right choice for a guy like Mike Chapman. Thanks, Mike.
2: Well, thank you, Larry. Appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. And congratulations on your podcast. And I look forward to uh, to listening to um, the other folks you interviewed. So thank you. I'm um, really great honor to be on your show. Thanks again, Larry. Forletta
0: Investigates. Thank you for listening to Forletta Investigates. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You could follow Forletta Investigative Security Consultants on LinkedIn and at FCIS LLC on Facebook. And if you are in need of investigative or security services, please go to fcisllc.com.